You're listening to Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is Ryan Babenzine, founder of the cult sneaker brand Greats. Ryan and I discuss how we started Greats with zero advertising, the importance of mentoring future entrepreneurs, and how hype is the enemy of brand. Let's do it. Mr. Babenzine. Did I say it? You did. All right. That was pretty good. Thanks for being on the podcast. Were you a singer at one point? You must have met, because you sound like you were. A singer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, I still sing, but I just sing to my dog and my daughter. So, so they love it. Yeah, a lot of Jim Croce and James Taylor. Oh, wow. Mellow. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Easy like Sunday morning style. <laughs> yeah. Not that that's either of them, but <laughs> it's I, true. you know what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I don't know. It's just it was kind of kind of my thing. Bad, bad Leroy Brown. That's right. Now that's that's the good stuff. Jim, Jim Croce is dope. Jim Croce, yeah. I mean, one of the do one of the best. I like say this all the time on tons of pods, and so every listener doesn't know it whenever I say it. But I routinely say that the best music, in my opinion, was recorded in the seventies. I think you're right. I yeah yeah. You I mean I'm like okay. I that, can't name that was like the, the number one hit from last year or the year before, but I can talk so. about shit that was before my time. Yeah, and so can you. Yeah. Yeah, music was different. Golden age of music, 1970s. Yeah, miss it. Um, so we're here to talk about greats and to talk about... We are? <laughs> Wait, I'm, excuse me, PR people. Like, I'm in the wrong interview. No, like, who's this guy? Uh, so the, the funny thing for me, and so I'll explain some of this stuff, and you can correct me at the beginning. Uh, I had no idea about greats. I didn't know, you know, I, I was familiar with your brother, um, but I knew at the at the time because i was probably one when we were talking earlier off mic about when you guys launch and the instagram account which we'll get into i was like who is this brand because for me you guys came out of nowhere and just blew the doors off the building and then what was interesting is you come out of nowhere you're like on everything and then all of a sudden it's like now it's like kind of like slowed down a little bit and now it's like this steady sort of growth and then what I'm seeing that's happening with greats, which is why I'm so glad you're on the pod so we can talk about this, is you guys blow up, but you don't get the curse of the brand that blows up and dies, right? You, you, you blow up, but then you're like, all right, we're going we're gonna to go back here for a bit, and we're just going to go work, and we're going to do, do our thing, and we're just going to like slowly grind. Is that, like, was that the goal of what you guys were doing? Um. Well, no, goal, no, but I think that's an amazing observation and it's super accurate. And I have to kind of unpack all that. Oh, yeah. Well, there's, there's a ton to unpack, right. but so, that's the, yes, the big thing. We come out of the box. I had a co-founder at the time. We had both worked in the industry. So we had some friends and understanding and knowledge and mm-hmm. all the endemic sites were writing about us. And so we kind of came out really fast, sold through our first production really fast. And then at that same time, the sneaker business just started to go fucking bananas. Like yeah. sneakers were becoming this different thing. Like, what uh, year did you launch real quick? Uh, we launched beta 2013, but we went dark until t- June of 14. So, cause we sold out of everything. So like right. August 13, we launched, we sell every single pair we made in 90 days, went, <laughs> went out, raised some money, relaunched or came out sure. of beta in June of 14. So June of 14 is what we really call our kind of like start date. Okay. But, but from June of 14 till now, sneaker industry reselling, it yes. has become a totally different animal. 
somewhere between that point and about two years ago, we made this conscious decision to stay out of the hype bubble because I, I believe hype is the enemy of brand. Interesting. And we want to build a long-term brand. We want to be around in 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. And in the four-year period that we're talking about of Greats' life, yeah. you can probably name five brands that are gone, that came and went. Yeah. And they were the fucking <laughs> hottest thing in the world. Yeah. And then they were zero. That's true. Okay. That, that's not what we want to be. No. So, so we kind of just you know, looked at the market. And I thought about what we want to do and how we're going to do it. And, and we shifted like just a tiny bit to the left to stay out of this kind of hype tornado mm -hmm. while still maintaining enough relevancy to be like around the fringe, but not like going through it and having the wings just fucking rip off a plane. Yeah. Well, so let's, let's go back to the beginning here. So when we were walking over here, because we're, we're in your beautiful apartment right now. Um, when we're walking over here. You Don't tell anybody the address. <laughs> of course, I can have eggs on the front window every day. Like. Um, before uh, we got started here, you were talking a little bit about your background. Now, you had said that you worked in Hollywood. I did. Yeah, I worked in entertainment. I was a. I worked at ICM. Okay. And then I became a manager, and I represented celebrities. And. That was an amazing experience. I well, mean, I, I it got. How did that happen first? That because that that is not the average career path. My career path looks like a serpentine curve. <laughs> um, I went to school here in New York. At I went to Fordham. Yep. Major in ecom. Wow. Econ. Sorry. Okay. I'm like I was ecom. Like, e ecom majors. <laughs> I was an economic major, gotcha. and and uh, thought I was going to work on Wall Street. Did two internships during the summer in fall season and realized like I didn't want to do that, but I, yeah. there was things I liked about it. And there was most, a lot of things I didn't like about it. And the things I liked were like this kind of intensity, fast paced, you know, kind of hyper alpha male bullshit. Now I look at it as bullshit, but yeah, yeah. I liked it when I was 20 and being an agent had that same Entourage? Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> fucking real. I, I know that guy in real life who, right. who, who ultimately produced that show. Yeah. Um, so I went to LA. I, like, picked up, moved to LA, knew nobody, had no money, took the bus to work. Like, true story. And, but, but ultimately, after 10 years in that industry, I got bored. I got bored of basically babysitting. And taking, you know, clients from zero to a million dollars a picture and then listening to them complain about whatever their complaint was. Like sure. they didn't have the right, you know, weights in their trailer or some fucking ridiculous shit. And I'm like, dude, you were a bouncer two years ago. I'm like, oh <laughs> fuck yourself. So I left and, you know, spent some time like trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had a few producer projects that I was working on. Sure. Also frustrating, but a lot of fun. You learn a lot. I spent, a, I lost a ton of money because I was financing myself at that point. Um, and then, and then, got an offer to run Puma's entertainment marketing because oh. I had this kind of knowledge of entertainment and lifestyle and marketing. And I was, con as a manager, I used to consult streetwear brands. Like I consulted Mecca USA. Oh, damn. Yeah. I them. remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were big, man. Yeah. They mattered. So they were always trying to figure out, like, how do we get, get it on the back of Ice Cube? Or how do we get in this movie? Or should we do an, an event? Like, we were doing experiential marketing 
in oh, 2004 okay. where, you know, Mecca would host an event at a bar one Sunday every, every month and, you know, cool people would come hang out. So um, that was my kind of entry into the sneaker culture as a professional. Yeah. Personally, I was always into it. I mean, it's something just we grew, we grew up in that era of the, you know, the, the convergence of music, skate, punk, fashion. And this is in Long Island, right? Yeah. And this, yeah. and this is what basically sneaker street, streetwear is as we know it today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like the, everything I feel now, like if you don't have some sort of skateboarding, skate punk-ish, you know, rebellious influence in your, in your thing, like that's, that like has to be the byline of, of, of like all these new companies and like the, the excuse me, the backbone of all these companies. And I, I don't like, I'm always like, okay, is this good? Is this bad? But it's like, no, it's just like this, every single person in, in America at this time, like you had nothing else to cling to, but this sort of culture. And like, I, for me, and I think a lot of other people, it's like skate culture. Yeah. I mean, if you weren't a, a fucking drone or a lemming, you know, you yeah. had, you kind of gravitated towards that. And we were, you know, we grew up in Long Island and it was a bit early where, you know, surfing when I grew up as a kid wasn't common. And I was surfing by the time I was 13. And, For real? Oh, yeah. We were in the water as little, little kids. Okay. But we, you know, went from boogie boarding to surfing, BMX, skating, snowboarding, any of those what are now kind of looked at as kind of California sports. Okay. We were doing that in the very, very beginning of its time. And now it's mainstream and it's mass. But, but back then, if you were like... I also played lacrosse. So like if you're playing lacrosse and you're surfing, Whoa. they're like, dude, what's, That's a what's, little up, and hide, what's man. up, bro? You know, you got a lot of that. <laughs> and, you know, we just, I was obsessed with things that California sports were, you know, I was obsessed with it. Yeah. Like I was like, I need to live in California. I said that at 12 and then I moved there Yeah, for 20 years. So 20 years in California? I lived in California for 20 years. Oh my God, that's wild. Yeah. So you're in California, you're at these parties, you're, you're consulting for the, these other brands and you're seeing all the street culture and excuse me, not street culture, sneaker culture that's happening there. And so when does it make sense for you to be like, I'm going to get into that? Because for myself, there's a lot of stuff that I'm into and I'm always like, yeah, but I could never do that. Or I don't even know how to put that together. Like, you know, because I think like there's definitely this just from the, the amount of time we've hung out and everything else I've read about you, you there's a very, very strong entrepreneurship within you into which for some reason you don't see the, uh, the, the barriers of entry. You're just like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. I mean, well, it's not that I didn't see the barriers. I just didn't care. <laughs> the, um, the, exactly. Which That's is a case very, point. it's an entrepreneurial mindset, 100%. which I think I definitely have. And I think you have to have, if you're going to start something from zero. Yeah. Um, but I, I did feel that my life mm -hmm. was the perfect mix of being able to start a sneaker brand and my knowledge of, of music and fashion and streetwear and the, the dots that connect all of that together. I lived them. Mm -hmm. I didn't like go to school to learn about it, read some case study as you would today. There yeah. were, there were no complexes or high snobs or hype beasts those were actually created because of the culture that we created i was part of that original you know i was going to union in college first year buying stussy hats <laughs> you know like 
talking right. to James, who was sitting behind the fucking counter. Right. This is two years before Supreme even started. Yeah. That's when I grew up. Oh, damn. So that's like, oh, it's a different, when you are like, you know, ticket holder number 10 into the ride, which is basically what we were, you just have a different view on it. So we were living it, not really learning about it. We were helping create it. Right. And, um, you know, years later, after some professional experience in the industry and understanding kind of the nuts and bolts of, of, of sneakers and marketing and customer segmentation and some things that I learned along the way, I thought, hey, why not start my own? Right. So what does that look like to start, I mean, to start a brand? Because like we were talking earlier and I told you I had started it, but obviously I made it all, all the mistakes. It's, it, from what I heard, you basically got this brand launched before you even had a product. Excuse me, a product delivered. <laughs> yes. Uh, we created an image before we had a product. So we, you know, we created an Instagram account and started posting. But you knew there was a product. It's just you hadn't del- there delivered There was a product yet, right? coming. Okay. And it was in development. Right. But we didn't have a sample. We didn't have a photo for sure. And yet we were able to get 10,000 followers before we launched our website. Which was a huge deal at huge, that time, too. Huge, yeah, because it was fairly early in Instagram. Yeah. Um, and only, like, the week before we launched the website did we then show, like, the product. So <laughs> who, who thought that was okay? Who thought that was a good idea? I mean, we had no choice. Really? Yeah. We were, were like, hey, we need to build a following. Can we do that pre-product? And if we can, then we really have a loyal customer, right? Right. Right. And I mean, because it's fascinating me. To so be, honest, I just to be know. honest, we didn't even think about we didn't even think about it. It was just, hey, let's just start posting about greats, register the name, and oh, start okay. showing things that we like that inspire the way we think about the world and design and fashion and music, et cetera. Yeah. And that's what we did. Cause I would argue now there are a lot of people. Uh, and I'm not here to like rip on other people, but there are other brands that I'm very aware of who are starting out right now who are doing the exact same thing. And they're like, they're basically selling the lifestyle and the experience of it to, to, to get people hyped on the product. But I, I honestly don't think they're doing it the way you guys did because <laughs> well, well, it, it's, it's, I don't think what, what they're doing is, is snake oil, but like it, it's, I, I, I just, I feel like that message and that, that method now, like, I guess it's been done, but when you guys were doing it, no one had done it. No one had heard of it. Well, I don't know. Nobody had done it that way. Exactly. I, that's probably Excuse because me. we hit the market when Instagram was fairly new and we used that as our platform and our vehicle to tell our brand story. Right. And, and, and talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, and talk about the lifestyle. But, you know, Ralph does that. You know, every great brand tells their brand story that's generally not about the product that you ultimately buy. And, and you know, yes, I think right. Ralph should get credit and we were b- both and are uh, Ralph customers. And like you would see this beautiful image of, you know, a dude on a bearskin rug in Aspen and they're selling a fucking polo shirt. <laughs> right. So <laughs> right. like, but it's right. like, yo, that whole scene is like what, what you bought into. Uh, and then the summer version, which is like on a Riva yacht and like some beautiful girl waiting on the dock for you and you're selling a, a, a slip on. Like the product was kind of the D story. The rest of it was the ABC story, but it made you want to be a Ralph 
Lauren Custom. Right. So we'll jump back here. Jump back to here. So you get hype. You have all these followers. Product isn't made. You're we about get to, awareness. You I get awareness. I don't know if we got me. hype, but we okay. get awareness. So th- that happens. And how many, how many shoes did you launch with? We made 2,400 pairs. Okay. Three colors of two different styles. So six total SKUs. Right. 2,400 pairs. And they're gone. Three months. No marketing. Not a dollar. Like, didn't have any. Yeah. It was just Instagram, press, word of mouth. So, you're you, obviously something's hot. Like, so how do you grow and create a team from there? I, I, we don't need to get into the nittiest gritty yeah. of this, but this is the most fascinating thing to me because I think the, the line that I'm connecting is yes, there is talent. Yes, there is an idea behind it. But like this to me is kind of like lightning in a bottle. And, and that's, that's what I'm trying to, to get. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know if it was lightning in a bottle. So let me just pack back up for a second. Yeah, please. Um, um, you know, building, building a brand of any kind of any size is just really hard, right? mm-hmm. whether you're one person or a hundred people. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we thought we had was some knowledge and a product offering that was unique in the market. Right. So, we're the first digitally native sneaker brand in the world. Now, there was other people doing it for other products. Warby Parker probably being the first. They were doing it with eyewear. Right. Everlane did it with T-shirts. We were like, we want to do that for sneakers, footwear. Mm-hmm. So being first gives you some advantage. Um, and we had this kind of crazy value proposition. Like you're, we're going to make this thing and it's going to be of this quality and it's going to be of this, this price, which, you know, the price value equation was better than all the traditional players in the market. Yeah. So that was kind of our business strategy. And then, you know, how do you get, how do you get, you know, go from cut one customer to a million customers? You know, that's the goal of a brand like ours. Like we're trying to get in front of as many customers that might like us and then convert them to customers and then keep them as customers. A lot of people focus on the get them and then not the keep them, which is why a lot of e-commerce businesses have gone away. Yeah. Because they just aren't that, the product wasn't that good and they're not very good at, you know, satisfying a customer, which is ultimately all this is about, Mm -hmm. no matter what you sell. To go to your question, you know, how do you go and like, how do you build a company or hire the people? Yeah. Fuck, man. I didn't have any idea. <laughs> you know, there's no roadmap. There's no like you know, playbook. Like follow these directions, and you'll build the company. You can you can read all the books. You can even go to school for it. Yeah, but none of that prepares you for the reality of what is about what what is coming. And I just spoke at a school yesterday of really really smart people. Like yeah, some of the smartest in the country. I'll say it. You spoke at MIT, which I, is fire. I did. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> and they have no idea how to... The reason they're asking me is they're like, hey, you went through that wall and through that fire. What, what do we need? Like, yeah. what kind of helmet should we wear? Do I need a bulletproof vest? Like, they want to know what are the tools you need to try to go do this. And, you know, I told them my experience because I can only tell them my experience and I told them that's how fine. I did it. But I think everybody's will be unique, although the, the direction may be the same, right? So you're like, you kind of want to go that way, but you're going to face some different hurdles. Mm. Um, 
but but ultimately it was just about persistence, vision, passion, and the and the ver- almost insane belief that we could disrupt the sneaker business. Yeah, and yeah. one of the things that you guys have, and I'll explain this, is so I, when I uh, came over, I I went went to your guys' office, the Great's office, and there's you have a like a small sort of retail space that's not. It, it's not like a retail store. It's more of like a try on, get familiar with the product, and, and I think you can buy stuff there, right? Yeah, yeah. We yeah. call it the studio. Okay, the studio. And it's just a place you can come by and shop. It's a, it, but like to but me. But it's connected to our office. Yeah, but it was, it was a, uh, this sort of passive retail experience in a good way. Like it just seemed really chill. Obviously, if you're coming there, you're coming direct because. It's not like you're just on a street corner right now. So how you guys even were doing, as I walked in, I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, oh wait, this isn't their office. This is like a retail And there's somebody, store. there was somebody in there. Yeah. We're not even open today. So that space is only oh, open Friday, Yeah, because there were some Sunday. dudes in there like trying on but shoes. Somebody's like, hey, I'm in the neighborhood. Can I come by the studio? So we said, sure, come on by. And we opened it for them. Oh. The, so, so to your point, I think your observation was like it's passive, which it is. I think our whole approach yeah. is not about selling. It's about educating. So the reason we can make the most accessibly priced luxury sneaker in the world is because of these reasons. Here's how we do it. Here's the, the, the quality of the leather. Mm-hmm. Here's, you know, this is why it, we're able to price it this way. And we kind of just educate the customer on what we do. You don't want to buy it. That's up to you. Yeah. If, but if you're looking for an Italian-made sneaker that's clean and simple, most people say yes. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys recently did launch a retail store that is not a passive experience. Well, it's passive. It's, it's still educational more than, you know, we don't or have, it was sal- an intentional we don't have store. sales quotas for our salespeople, oh, right? okay. which is a you know, a traditional retail model. Right. We opened in Venice, California, on Abikini. It's in an old bungalow, super chill, yeah. all white, very minimal, very respective of the community of Venice. And the way we want our team to work is engage, educate, that's your job. Do not sit here and like try to like convert tell them how beautiful they look and it's going to make them taller. Right. Whatever the don't, fuck, don't sell it. Whatever retail people do in the traditional yeah. world, that's not That looks our great style. on you. Of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> that looks like shit, dude. No, <laughs> no but really, like, yeah. we're not... We just take a slightly different approach on how um, we treat customers. So that right there, the, the different approach, where did that come from? The... Edu- engage and educate. It came from my, my um, distaste for shopping at retail. Like, I'm the kind of guy that doesn't want to be bothered because I'm generally, I know what I want, I know what I need. I definitely don't need somebody to help tell somebody how good I look in something or it makes me look thinner or taller or all of the things that you've heard in retail. Yeah. I just want to know, do you have this in my size? I'm good. That's, right. a, that's as much help as I need. I don't, and I think today's customer, there's a ton of new studies that are saying that like millennials and younger want to be left alone when they're shopping. Yeah. They're, it's not that kind of, 
late 80s Beverly Hills come in and sit down and get, be catered to and, you know, have your hair blown out in the whole process or whatever the fuck they did back then. Yeah. We, our, our generations that are, are discovering brands today are generally more educated than they were before. Mm-hmm. There's less of a need for that retail, you know, suck up, if, yeah. if you will. Um, and that's where it came from me. It came from me believing there were more people like me that just, they may have wanted to know about the product. Yeah. I, I want to know what I'm buying and where it's from and what it means. Which you guys do make it pretty easy to find. Yeah, but that's it. Yeah. The rest, I don't need your opinion on how it looks with my, you know. With your whatever my jeans dreams, or. My dreams pants. Yeah, or to up, <laughs> upsell you yeah. on anything. Right. I'm a bit of a skincare junkie and have tried nearly every brand. Almost all of them have been a massive multi-step process that was more difficult than a Star Wars Lego set. Don't act like you don't get that reference, but I recently switched to Panacea and am locked in. Panacea is a brand new gender neutral skincare brand developed out of Korea, the skincare capital. At Panacea, they take a different approach of just three simple products, not 10, not eight, three. I picked up the essentials kit and have been hooked on their moisturizer. You can use it in the morning and at night and it doesn't have that greasy feel other moisturizers have. It absorbs quickly and I can move on. Panacea's products are paraben-free, cruelty-free, sulfate-free, and no animal origin. Look, they're doing it right over there. Right now, they're offering Blamo listeners 20% off their first order. Go to thepanacea.com forward slash Blamo. Last but not least, they have a 21-day guarantee. If you're not happy, they'll provide a refund, no questions asked. Who has a refund for skincare? So good. So go to thepanacea.com forward slash Blamo and take better care of your skin. Yeah, because that, that to me is, and it's funny because, you know, there are other places that are trying to do this thing now, but it's only because they just spent seven figures in marketing research to try to, try to realize that. And because here's the thing, I know from other people that I've talked to and, you know, I love Barney's, I love Bergdorf, I love, I, unfortunately, the nostalgia of these epic retail experiences, but I really don't want to go in there and if i do the ones that i really want to go into are the ones that are like historic where like it's for me it's this sort of i like to go to bergdorf goodman because bergdorf goodman is bergdorf goodman you know but if if there was a new you know bg that opens up and it's like bg downtown i would never go because it doesn't have that vibe in there right you you're going there for the for the heritage of it exactly but from a sales function right those people that work there, they make a, they actually make a ton of money. Oh yeah, you can hundreds of thousands of dollars. A yeah, year, for sure. But 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 they're commissioned, right? So they're yeah. constantly going to hover you. And I've I've never been a fan of that experience as a consumer. No, and and, and many people and aren't. many people yeah. aren't. Yeah, uh, I think it's a throwback. It's also part of that kind of heritage. It used to be something people wanted. Yeah, and I I, I think uh, the you know. You know, anybody under 40 kind of just doesn't want to be bothered with that stuff. Like they might go in and want to buy, you know, the Laurel Piana top coat. Sure. They just don't need you to fawn all over them to do it. Yeah. Like just show me camel, navy, and black and I'll pick one. Right. It's kind of that as opposed to you go there and you spend two hours and you 
do whatever you, I don't know, man. I don't know what people used to <laughs> no, do. This, well, this <laughs> is fascinating because I think right now is probably the biggest time of the shift because you have basically the baby boomers are kind of dying out and they're, they're on their last sort of. They're certainly not shopping like that anymore, right? No. They, they kind of have everything they need. Yeah. By the way, that was not, this is not a diss on Bergdorf. Like, it's one of my favorite oh, stores absolutely in the world. Not. I think it's like, it's an amazing. Yeah. I mean, Bruce Pask has been on and yeah. I, I, I love Bergdorf. Incredible. But there is, there is a, a very large shift and it's, it's the fact that I feel that more people are inclined to shop the greats-esque ex- experience, which is I want to come get my product physically. I want to I, I understand. I want to know my product. But I don't need a lot of bells and whistles in the physical experience, I don't, you know, I don't need all that other stuff. And the Bergdorf's, I mean, they're cheese. They're, they realize it. They're trying to do it right now too. But what's interesting is that whole retail is kind of sunsetting and, but it's still there. And so, and it's, it's interesting. Yeah, but what, it's a legacy player like it, Bergdorf. Exactly. That's like, that's still there. Yeah. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to see like when will be the shift where everyone is like half depot in a good way. And half, you know, uh, good vibes or something. I, I, I don't know. I, I think we're there. Yeah? I, I mean, I think we're, like, on that pivot point. Yeah. Um, you know, Greats is opening its second store in Soho in this month. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to continue to open more of them because the digital part will always be our biggest. But right. the physical part is very complementary, and they feed each other. So, like, there's just a large percentage of the people that still need to touch it and feel it and try it on. Yeah. Even though we have a really convenient, free shipping, free exchanges, all of that, mm-hmm. you still have to get it, try it, send it back. So the other part of the group that doesn't want to do the digital part, they just want to touch it. They want to just try it on make sure it fits. And, you know, our Venice store is, is doing very, very well. And it proved that if you give, like, people that know about us that didn't buy, once you gave them a place to go buy it, they go buy it. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, I got the, uh, don't, you're going to kill me because I don't know the name of the shoe, but the running shoe. The Rosen? Yeah. Wait, how much was it? Do you know? Uh, this was a few years ago, and I got it because it was next door. It was here, but it was next. Oh, to Stephen Allen. Our little pop up. It yeah, it was it was here, but it was next to the old Ralph Lauren that was yeah, over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got I was like, this shoe looks sick. It looks like this like vintage sort of running shoe. It had, I was the Rosen. Yeah, because I was uh right. It was right after I'd come back uh from Italy, and I was like all about Hogan's and stuff like that. And so I wanted this. I wanted this kind of like you know, chunkier looking. And, you know, obviously you guys just got a big plug on that in the Wall Street Journal. Was that, is that the same shoe? No, the that's the Pronto, which is basically the Italian version of the Rosen. So we have kind of two different price points. But okay. the Pronto, which is what you're talking about, yeah. is a retro runner style. That's 199 bucks, but it's made in Italy. So like, you know, that comp in that, like most shoes at that that look like that are made in Italy or like 400 or more. Oh yeah. 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 So that's yeah, 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 expensive. And so, but for me, I had seen greats and I'd seen it online, but I was like, I was that dude that was like, well, I kind of want to touch it. Like yeah. I kind of want to, I was like, let me at least check it out. And I saw, I was like, these are dope. And I bought them. 
And because I remember I met up with Trunzo and he was like, dude, you're wearing greats. And I was like, yeah, I had, I had dinner with him last week. Oh, you did? Yeah. Love Trunzo. Love man. that guy. Such a good guy. But he was like, he's like, dude, you're wearing greats. He's like, who told you about that? And I was like, the internet, <laughs> the, the interwebs. And he was like, oh, Kirkland. But like th- that, like I still wanted that experience. So it's interesting to me that you, you said you're, you're doing more retail stores. And it's always been our strategy to have stores, by the way. So we, we're just a little bit late. Um, are you, I mean, from so. The, from the very beginning, we said we'd have three, three distribution channels because mm-hmm. that's what they are. Ecom would be biggest and number one. Yep. Um, retail, which will be. I don't know how big it'll be. I don't know if we'll have five doors, 10 doors, 100 doors, but great retail. And then one or two key partners um, that we would wholesale with, which we have in Nordstrom. Right. Right. And how, how is that going? Really well. Yeah. I mean, we went live with them in October, um, and we started with eight doors on the West Coast, and now we're in 21 doors. We'll be opening with them in their new New York store in a week. Jeez. Which is like insane. It's yeah. an amazing. I went over there a couple of weeks ago. It's going to be a big deal. So the the second part of this that I want to try to connect is right when we started, when we were talking. I was saying you guys came out of the gate, then you guys kind of retract a little bit, so you can grow and grow at scale and and not you know disappear. What are the things that you guys are doing right now to kind of keep that from happening? Because what, what's really interesting is I walk through the doors. There was like, how many people were in your office? I mean, I was blown away. Yeah, I mean, it might look like a lot. It's not. 21, 22. I mean, that's... that's it's not. Not for the scale of our business. But, but you know, it's funny that you... So we do come out of the box. We sell through all that product. And then we basically operated the business from June of 14 to August of 17, 30% out of stock all the time. Not because we wanted to, and not because we were trying to do that. <laughs> right. We just couldn't make stuff fast enough. So that's not a great, that's not great, right? That's like, you want to, being 30% out of stock, you're sure. losing a lot of revenue. But more importantly, you're pissing off customers most of the time, or 30% of the time, because they come and they want this thing, and there's nothing, they, they can't buy it. So we had to fix that. And um, it took us two years to do it. Partly because we were testing certain styles, like what's going to be our core palette, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we'd put a shoe out. How does it do? Does it stay? Does it go? So that took some time. And then it was just a function of bandwidth. Like it, there's only so much you can do. Um, and at that point, you know, we were eight people, right? So we were doing a lot but with a very small team with very, very little capital. Right. I'll stop for one second. You have only eight people on this team. Not anymore, but yes, then. Yeah, at then. And your production, you didn't own your production, right? Still don't. You, you still don't? I mean, we don't own the factory. Yeah. Is that, do you think you'd ever do that down the road? Uh, maybe. Uh, I mean, we haven't, um, maybe. Yeah. There's, there's pros and cons to it. I think the pro is you get to own... Your vertical top to bottom. Yeah. And in theory, you have more control. Right. But there's other challenges. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, when, I, when we were doing stuff, and obviously small potatoes, it was, you know, we basically were, we went from order, ordering SKUs to buying production time. And we were like, okay, well, we need this time. And then at the same time, a very, very famous, you know, 
red bottom shoe person was also making shoes at this factory. So we got bumped. And then basically everyone's orders. What part of Italy were you in? Uh, I mean, this, it doesn't matter because the business is funk. We were at uh, Martigani. No, I'm, I'm saying like, I don't mind saying it. But so what, what region? Abruzzi? Uh, Abruzzi. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, dude, it was, it was so bad. But like, you know, so we were like trying to buy production time to do that. And so I'm, I'm just curious, like, as, as you guys were scaling for that, um, you know, when you're working with these factories, I mean, and you don't know exactly what you're going to, how many you're going to order. I mean, did you have to wait until you had uh, enough orders on your side and then send that to the factory? Or? No, we didn't do what you did. We actually said, okay, we're going to make 10,000 and then we make 10,000. We're going to make 20,000. You know, like we just kept making and buying the inventory. It wasn't pre-sold. Um, so, you know, that's capital intensive, obviously. Right. Uh, but the business was growing and the demand was there. So we were, we were confident that we could sell it once we had it. Yeah. Um, but we didn't, we didn't reserve factory time in that, in that way. But, you know, a supply chain is a challenge no matter what. Yeah. Like, no matter how big you are. Yeah, how small true. you are. Like, it's just hard. I think you get different terms and credit facilities when you're bigger, but, but the, the, the function of making things is still really challenging and fairly time-consuming, and it's all by hand. Yeah. Like, shoes are just by hand. There's not, there's not a lot of automation. They cut it, automated with a machine, but they're putting their hands on it every other step of the way. Like when they assemble a last, it's lasted with a guy with a machine, but there's a hand on it. And then like when they put the bottom on, you know, all of that, there's a person there. It just, you can't, at this point, you can't take a human out of making a sneaker. Yeah. Not yet. We might be close. But, it's true. I mean, there's you know some brands that are doing these 3D printing stuff, but I mean, geez, right? But that's a that's, that's a, a novelty, incredibly at this point. Yeah, yeah, small scale. Um, so you guys did a collaboration with Wooster a long time ago. Do you remember that? And there's a pair right over there that aren't out yet. Oh, fire! <laughs> oh, those are really sick. Well, well anyway, <laughs> just lost my train of thought here. But uh, it was called the Wooster. Do you? I guess, I mean, you just answered my question. Is that something you guys still are going to do and still with collaborations with people? Yeah, so we named our slip-on after Nick Yeah. because um, he just loved slip-on sneakers, so we, na- we named it for, for Nick, after Nick. Then we collaborated with Nick on the Lardini stuff, and now we'll have a great Wooster, kind of Wooster four greats coll- collection capsule. Oh, sick. Which will be coming out later this year. That's a first, that's a like hot off the press. Oh, really? Yeah, nobody knows that. So when, when you start doing collaborations with people, how does that pitch run? I mean, we don't pitch a lot. It's interesting. Like, we get a lot of inbound traffic. Mm-hmm. It, with Nick, it was super organic. Like, Nick, Nick, I made an advisor to the company in the very, 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 very beginning of the company just because Nick and I were friends. And I'm like, dude, I just need your fucking input on, like, you know, have I lost my mind if I think about doing this color or. What are you seeing in the market? That you know, it was really just intel. And then that evolved into what it is today. But it was super organic, so there wasn't a lot of pitch. In terms of other, like we've collaborated with, you know, Marshawn Lynch. Mm-hmm. Um, they called us. Like we collaborated with my brother for Noah. Oh, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. Uh, we've collaborated <laughs> with Billions for Showtime, which will be out in May. Oh, geez. Yeah. Totally, yeah, because I was wondering, I was like, totally I was like, what's this plug on, on the IG with billions over here? 
Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but there are times when we reach out. A lot of the stuff probably just happens. Just a bunch of emails bouncing back and just forth. Just relationships that we already have. You know, J- Josh Pesco. Yeah. Like, he's like, hey, can we do a magazine shoe? And I'm like, sure. You know, why not? Yeah. Well, how, how easy? I mean, I, I imagine that's got to be a little bit easier because you, your guys' size and scale, right? I mean, that, you know, for some people when they want to try to do a collaboration, they're like, oh, sorry, we're basically booked for the next two and a half years. <laughs> yeah. Like, a lot of times we'll give access. Like somebody like Dine, for example, great right. example. Like Bevins is has this amazing brand, right? Mm-hmm. And but he he he, you know, to do shoes, the minimums are fairly high. And if he had to do it on his own, it would be kind of a pain in the ass. So he's like, "Hey, can you do some shoes for us for the show?" And that's how that started. And now we have a capsule with him. But um, so a lot of times people will come to us because we know we can help them offset the minimums for them to do it on their own right and provide some service if you will right and then if it makes sense for us we'll do it not not in you know the quantity sense but like do we does is this the best in class because we we try to work with best in class brands or people or retailers you know united arrows was a perfect example of yeah of course we're going to do united arrows but there's 20 fucking retailers that we said no to because they're dog shit yeah. So we, we really, for all the collaborations we do, we really only work with the best people in their category. Yeah. I mean, and, and also like, geez, like working with UA and those guys, I mean, they're, they're the yeah, best. Pogi was dope. Like, yeah. Of course we're going to work with him. He, he had this like vintage Sashiko fabric and the shoe was beautiful. It's, a, it's still one of my favorites. Oh, that's so cool. Um, and, you know, we did a Pogi pin with Pintrail. Like, it was, yeah. yeah, stuff like that's fun. Yeah, I like to do it because it's fun. That's awesome. Um, so earlier you had mentioned your brother. We were talking about him. How is that sort of relationship? Because both of you guys are in the industry. Both of you are in pretty large positions. In I mean, obviously you you know founded and run greats. Your brother was at Supreme, which is you know this behemoth, and now he's crushing it at Noah, which he had started. What's Christmas like for you guys? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not talking about sneakers or t-shirts and hats. I can tell you that. Yeah. Is there like a very strict no, no, it's no clothing it's, talk at the table? No, but, but, but <laughs> no, it's funny though. Uh, but we don't, I think in our personal lives at this point, we don't like talk about the industry the way you do when like you just start. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Like Brendan's an authority on what he does. And I've become an authority. But Brennan was in the fashion business well before I was. So he's done yeah. it for a longer time. Um, he, he's not like coming home, you know, talking about thread count in a t-shirt. Or, <laughs> right. He just isn't. It's right. not interesting to him. And neither am I. Like, I don't come home every day. and You're just like vulcanized weather. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. This vulcanizing is taking forever. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean to say I'm not incredibly passionate about what we do and oh, for nor, sure. nor and the same for Brendan, but, um, you know, we, we have other, I think y- you have to have a well-rounded life to be a great designer or leader or business owner. And if you, if all your, if your whole life, like 24 seven is just talking about the product, I, I think you're missing out on a lot. Right. Both personally and professionally. Right. I mean, well, was he cool with it when you were like, hey, P.S., I'm, I'm 
ditching this Hollywood career and I'm going into the fashion world? Yeah, he had, why, why would he not be? He had no issues whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I gave him a lot of guidance when he was about to launch Noah because I was already doing an e-com based business. That's true. And he was like thinking about Noah and how to relaunch it because it was the second time. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And he's like, I just told him I, I really believe that he should think about being more vertical than wholesaling a bunch of accounts. And he ultimately did that. Yeah. I mean, he's in very few wholesale accounts. Yeah, very, very few, but like but, top, but, top But points. the energy came from the store and the website from day one. And now he's just in, you know, Dover Street. Yeah. That's, so, I mean, that's pretty wild. What are the other things that are like keeping you grounded or that are like influencing the rest of what you're doing? Um, I mean, like, well, Jeremy, thanks for asking. <laughs> Look around. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a lot of interest. Um, but does, I'm, I, I'm into design and I'm into things and products and finely made things. I really am. So, and I've been that way since I was a little kid. But I think it's, it's not just the sneaker part of it, right? Like, I like watches and food and traveling. I mean, it sounds so fucking cliche, all this shit. It's not cliche. But I have a wabi-sabi design book sitting in front of you. You know, like, that's true. these are just things that I've always been into. Um, architecture plays a huge influence in my life. And, you know, mid-century modern style homes are like, I, like, you know, I aspire. There's a guy I know in California. I won't mention his name. He collects mid-century modern homes. Homes? Yeah. Like some guys collect watches. Sure. Some guys collect sneakers. Yeah. This guy cr- collects Neutras. Like. Holy. Yeah. He's a fucking baller. Well, good for him. So I aspire to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, because see, that's and the reason why I'd ask is, you know, I think for myself, I can get really, really, really into stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to be a master at this. I'm going to understand this through and through. But I've, and this is just unconsciously, I'll, in, I'll make an echo chamber that I'm not able, that I have to like take a break, take a minute, get out so I can get a breath of fresh air or inspiration from something else so I can get back and be deeper than what I was before. I think that's a good way that I would view the world as well. Yeah. Like, like I'll do a really deep dive in something and learn as much as I can, but then, then you have to then find the balance again. Because yeah. if you're just focused, for me, mm-hmm. if I was just like that granular, I'd, I, I think I'd lose all this other stuff that helps me as a, as a total. The Japanese would argue, do one thing really well. Your denim. All you should talk about is denim. All you should think about is denim. And just breathe denim. And like, there are some guys that that works for. For me, I'm not one of them. Right. Well, so um, you, you said you've been doing these, these traveling like workshops uh, with other universities. I mean, you were t- talking at MIT. Is that, I mean, is that the plan in the, long, in the long run? Because I think one of the things that's really good that you're able to do is, yes, like you're, you're making a business, which is great, but like a lot of people can make a business. But what I think you're doing that's also huge is you're inspiring and kind of paving the way for a, a different way to run a business, a different way to relate to customers. And I think it, and, and it's, you know, it's cheesy as this sounds, like it's really inspiring for a lot of other people who's going to launch the next great. Like, yeah, uh, to be honest, when I started greats, I never thought about like, okay, here's my plan. Mentorship. Yeah, didn't, didn't think about it. <laughs> right. Surprisingly, and to my own personal satisfaction, I really like that 
part of what I'm able to do. And when I, so basically I get asked to do quite a lot. I do most, I don't do most of it because I just don't have the time. Mm-hmm. But when a school asks me to do it, I make the time. So yeah. like, that's like a big, you know, for me, like to give back. Cause I just remember when I was in school, like, what am I going to do with my life? Like that question was like in my head all the time. Like, how am I going to pay off this debt? What am I going to do? Just looking for the lane, right? Yeah. And, and so, so I, if I can, you know, give one person some direction, even though they're coming out of MIT, they probably don't need my direction. Then I feel good about myself. So it's really selfish, self-serving almost. But um, I think every once in a while, somebody walks away with some knowledge. So oh, come on, yeah, of course, yeah, I hope so. So like Jason Alexander of Seinfeld. One of the things that is like a big mission for him, because obviously that guy doesn't need to work ever again. And, you know, he does lots of theater. But one of the things that he's doing is he went to Boston University and he goes to schools and specifically conservatories and is like, you need to change everything that you're doing to try to like equip these actors. And he's like, because, you know, it's a it's a great program. It's an intense program. But when they leave. They don't know how to do it. They don't know what they're doing. They know how to act, but they don't know how to produce anything. They don't know what a stage manager does. They're like, they're like, they know nothing. And I think there's a like, uh, and we won't get too granular on this, but there's like a small hole in the educational system of being having all this training, but not really knowing what to do when the rubber meets the road. Yeah, like being well rounded. Exactly. Like having like being able to connect all the dots because. And that goes back to my point. Yeah. If you're the best thing at like this one little thing, are you, are you more valuable or less valuable? And I like this happens in sports right now. Like when we grew up, we played all kinds of sports. You were just, you played sports. Yeah. Today, by 13, you pick a sport, you specialize in that sport and maybe you succeed at it. Right. But like, the days of playing football, basketball, baseball, lacrosse, Bo soccer, Jackson's over. Those are gone. And like, <laughs> yeah, like sure, the, the athletes are better for it in the NFL, but the chances of getting there are few and far between. And you've dedicated all this time to the one sport that you didn't really succeed at anyway because you didn't make it to the pros. So you've lost out on all of this experience that the, and, and like becoming a well-rounded human along the way. And, and that's where, um, to Jason Alexander's point, like they learn how to do the skill, but then they don't really know how to apply it in the real world. Exactly. And like, yeah. So I spoke at MIT at the entrepreneur school where they're teaching you how to be an entrepreneur, which I actually said was fucking bullshit. (laughs) You can't learn how to be an entrepreneur. You can read some things that entrepreneurs have done. You can maybe learn a skill or two that, you know, you can get better at. Sure. But I, I believe, and I said this and they loved it, was that entrepreneurs are born, not made. Mm. I, I, would, I would probably agree with that. You I, have to have an entrepreneurial makeup. Yeah. If you then go to entrepreneur school, then you're, yeah, that's great. But if you're just like, what should I do with my life? Hmm entrepreneurship seems pretty interesting. I'm going to go do that. And then I'm going to be qualified to go start a business. Those guys, like, that's probably not, like, that doesn't guarantee success. Yeah. Have you ever told someone that they should give up? (laughs) No, not directly. But 
but I, I'll, I'll frame the questions to help them maybe get to that place because, yeah, you know, like you just see people trying to do shit and you're like, dude, really? Like you're fucking five foot four. You're not going to be a starting guard for like Georgetown. Like stop <laughs> that. Give up that dream. Yeah. But, but you know, anyway, no, no, that's, that's, that's true. And I think, uh, I, what's really interesting to me too, throughout all this is, is there is a very, there's a strong, humble sense from you, but this sense of giving back for me, it, it feels like that you're more into how you're shaping the industry than how you're just living in it. And I think that's the most exciting thing of, of this. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm glad you see that. I mean, I really feel there's a responsibility to one better, better for the next, right? Like in our industry as a direct to consumer business, um, primarily direct to consumer. We're, and we're venture capital back. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of other types of brands that have gone out and raised all this money and then failed. And I always have a problem with brands like ours that sell other things that have raised too much money and then failed. And what they've done is they've made it impossible for the next guy behind them to go raise some money and mm. execute on that, uh, that idea. And, the, and my point is, there should be a responsibility for, for, from both the venture community and the founders just not to do too much. Like, don't set yourself up for failure. Raise the capital. Go out and build a business. But don't fucking over-inflate over what it really is. And there's been a lot of that. Yeah. I think we've course-corrected. I think the last decade we've seen, like, a more realistic view on the world, and nobody thinks that just because you made a t-shirt and sold 10,000 10, units in one month that you're going to be the next billion dollar t-shirt company. Right. Right. Thankfully. But, um, there was a lot of irresponsibility in the beginning and I, I definitely have challenged that publicly and I'm a venture capital backed business. So yeah, I, I, I think we, uh, I think we want to make the, the market a better place and not just for us. That's awesome. That's really awesome. I think I think that's kind of a good place to wrap it up too. Um, is there any other thing you'd like to add or mention before we do though? No, can I take these headphones off now? Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, <No>. see ya. <laughs> You're listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like this episode, there's plenty more to dive into at blamopod.com. Listen to Blamo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, tell a friend and leave a review. It helps what others know and discover the show. You can follow us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or send us an email at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our newly launched Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. <laughs>